Father, Lord, we thank you for being a great creator and also our Savior. We thank you for what you've done for us through your Son. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us your word this morning and help us look deeply into the issues in 1 Corinthians 3 that we may be guarded against false teachers who build using man's wisdom rather than your wisdom, the wisdom of the gospel and Christ and him crucified. And Lord, we ask that these things would sit heavily upon us and that we would um, even examine our own motivations for ministry, whatever ministerial forms we find ourselves in. So Lord, uh, help conform us to the image of your Son through the Word, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, um, we're going to see that the church must, in fact, be built on the gospel. And I want you to realize at the outset that this message is directed specifically at teachers of the Word, but it really extends to all Christians because we do believe, as it says in First Peter, in the priesthood of all believers. And therefore, um, any of you who have a teaching ministry to whomever it may be in the kingdom, this is an important message for you to check your, your own motivations and also to um, examine those who maybe are teaching you. And um, we're going to see that the Corinthians were trying to build the church, that is the false teachers at Corinth, were trying to build the church on human wisdom, human Sophia, and they were negating the true wisdom of God. Now what I want to start out by doing is showing you the flow of Paul's thought in his argument Remember last time we left off in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. And if you remember in verse 9, there was two analogies Paul made regarding the church. We were likened to a farmer's field and we're also likened to a building. So remember, when he likened us to the farmer's field, we were the crop, the, the Corinthians technically, but it extends to all Christians. Paul was the planter, Apollos was the irrigator, but God made the increase. Well, the very last analogy that he leaves us off with is that of a building, okay? And so who is the one who does the building? Well, it's actually God. And those who are preaching the gospel are merely hired servants. So what you're going to see now in this section 10 through 15, or 10 through 17 actually that we're in, is Paul's going to continue, and no pun intended, build off the building analogy, okay? So in verses 10 through 11, there's actually a chiastic structure where we see, first of all, A, Paul laid the foundation of the church. Now, what is the foundation of this building? Well, it's Christ and him crucified. It's the root of the gospel. So the gospel, anytime I think of gospel, euangelion, the good news, I always think of two aspects. It's the person of Christ, who he is, and it's what he did. So it's the person and work. Because what a person does also reveals their character. So the foundation, of course, is therefore the gospel, Well, then what Paul goes on in these very important two verses, he goes on to say, well, now someone else is now building on the foundation, and those are, in fact, these teachers that he's taking issue with because they're elevating their own wisdom. And then he warns them that someone, whoever that someone is, better be careful how he builds. Why? Well, because the foundation Paul laid is Jesus Christ, and there can be no other. Okay, so that's how that's structured. Now, what he goes on then in uh, verses 12 through 15 as he talks about the judgment seat of Christ, where all believers will answer as to how they built. And if you recall in this section, we'll get into it obviously, is that gold, silver, and precious stones are those items that will last forever. Meaning that whoever builds consistently with the gospel is building with, those, with the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. And therefore, they're actually building upon the foundation. Okay, If you build with the wood, hay, and stubble, it's going to burn up. All right? 
Well, then in verses 16 through 17, that's where we'll end this morning, is there's a warning, and this is going to extend to all teachers who are not building upon the foundation. There's a warning not to destroy God's temple. So notice now he shifts from the building. He talks about the foundation, which is, of course, Christ. He warns that you have to build with things that are consistent with that foundation. And then he says, well, what kind of building was it? Well, it's a temple. And the temple is founded on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So that's how he ends up with the building metaphor. The metaphor at the very end is the temple. And so you and I, friends, are the temple of the living God. And, and, and so, therefore, it's a very bad thing to do anything to the temple that would cause it pain or trouble. So let's get into the first verses here. Uh, we see here, by God's grace, Paul laid the foundation, verses 10 through 11. Paul writes, he says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's interesting, it seems almost as if Paul is bragging, he calls himself a wise master builder, but notice it's according to God's grace. Okay, so even though it would seem a little braggadocious to say, well, I'm a wise master builder. Paul is right in the outset, he's attributing it to God. God is the one who did it through him and for him. And so he's not uh, boasting in his own merits. Now I want to show you elsewhere in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about himself as the master builder or the father um, of the Corinthians. In fact, the very fact that the Corinthians exist, friends, as believers is evidence of him being an apostle. And I want to look at those passages. Who had the first Corinthians uh, 4, yeah, 14 through 15? I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Yeah, thanks, Larry. So, yeah, he regards himself as the father of the Corinthians uh, belief. And again, it's all by God's grace. God did the work. He earlier said, of course, he's just a fellow worker. And then, uh, Pat, you had 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 2. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship. In the Lord. Yeah, so here the very evidence of his apostleship. One of the things he cites, first of all, that he's seen Christ. That's obviously an objective standard, but also the very people that came to faith, that is the Corinthians, that's also evidence that he is an apostle. And they, in fact, the seal of his apostleship. So again, but it's all by God's grace. Now let me talk about this idea of being a wise master builder. And again, this whole section in 1 Corinthians, and a lot of 1 Corinthians is built on irony. Remember that the wise were bragging in their, their Sophia. So those at Corinth, they claimed to be wise, but it was Paul who actually was teaching wisdom, wasn't he? He was teaching God's wisdom because it was consistent with the gospel. So there's irony. He continuously picks that term wisdom to kind of poke it in the eye of the Corinthians to say, you claim to be wise and you reject me. If you say, I'm not wise because I keep teaching you the same thing. But in actuality, Paul is wise because he's staying with the gospel. That is Christ and him crucified. So that's the idea that he's getting at there. The idea, too, it's interesting, the term for builder in the Greek is actually the term where we get uh, for architect in the Greek. It's architectone. But it's interesting because it's both the architect and the engineer. 
rather than just the builder. So Paul is saying that he's not just the carpenter, that would be down here, tectone, but he's also the engineer and the architect of their faith. And so again, this is a term that I think he's using to show his apostolic authority. Okay, um, you know, I may claim to be a, a tectone, a carpenter, because I'm preaching the gospel, but in some sense, an apostle is used differently, and that's, I, I think, why he's using that term, architectone. In fact, the term is used in Isaiah 3.3 3, in the Septuagint for a master artisan who would work on the temple. Okay, in fact, God promised in Isaiah that he would take out any master artisans because no longer would he allow Jerusalem to exist because of their idolatry. So that's the context. But So the term is even known in the Old Testament, and these people would have known exactly what he's talking about. He was the architect and engineer by God's grace of their faith. So the builders now, remember, these are the teachers that he's addressing who are now, instead of building on Christ and him crucified and everything associated with the gospel, they're now building, they're going off in their entirely different direction. They're jettisoning the foundation, and they're trying to build a superstructure on a foundation that doesn't exist, and so he's going to warn them. So let me just talk more about this foundation in the same verses. He says, I laid a foundation. Well, the foundation, of course, is Jesus Christ and him crucified. So anything that doesn't line up with that foundation, you can build but it's not God's work. It, it, it won't accord. In fact, it cannot even happen. And let me explain. Uh, notice it says, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. Paul is warning here the teachers in Corinth. And mind you, he is not warning Apollos and Peter. Okay? Because remember, Apollos and Peter, they weren't the issue. Right? Apollos and Peter were fellow workers in the gospel. They weren't the issue. The issue were these false teachers well, they cannot build with their own materials, namely the Sophia of man. Now, very interesting, there's this term other, and it literally, in the Greek, it's para. Now, you've all heard of a paramilitary, right? A paramilitary organization would be a military organization that stands alongside of the regular one, right? And so a paramilitary organization, but sometimes you'd have special forces and so forth. Well, para typically means alongside of. And so what Paul is saying is you can't build a foundation alongside of the foundation that exists. Well, why? Well, because God won't recognize it. In fact, notice this term here where it says, for no man can. Remember the difference between can and may? Remember your second grade teacher, you'd raise your hand, you'd say, can I go to the bathroom? And they'd say, I don't know, can you? (laughs) Remember, and you'd get really frustrated. Because sometimes you wouldn't figure out what they were getting at and then... It would go on and on. And, but the point is, is can is different than permission. Okay, uh, can comes from dunatai, which the, that's the verbal form. The noun is dunamis, where we get dynamite. It has to do with power. Now, power isn't so much the issue. It, it is somewhat, but it's the idea of ability. So what, what you have to realize what he's saying is no man literally can. They don't have the ability to do it. Why? Because God won't recognize it. Okay. It's an impossibility to build a foundation or a building for God that doesn't have as its foundation the gospel. It's impossible. It can't happen. And so just see that this is an impossibility. It's not that, well, they have their building and God has his. No, the building that they're building is heading for destruction. God will not recognize it. It's something that doesn't exist as far as he's concerned. It's a very strong sentiment that Paul is portraying here. Are you with me? Okay. All right, so now let's move on to the next verses, 12 through 13. 
And here Paul is pointing out that we have to build on the gospel. He says, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, friends, anytime you see an if, there is an implied then, typically. Okay, It's called a protasis, apotasis construction. So the protasis here is the if. If a man builds, and notice, what would you build with? Well, it's the foundation. And if you build on that foundation, which is Christ, gold, silver, precious stones, what's going to happen? It'll last. But if it's wood, hay, or straw, it's not going to. So the Corinthians, friends, must build the superstructure. Remember, that's what's built on top of the foundation. It, they have to build it on Christ in a way that is consistent with the gospel, right? So now the gold, silver, precious stones are materials that endure the testing by fire. In fact, notice that these are all in descending value. Gold is more valuable than straw, but also gold is more valuable than silver. So as Paul goes down the list, they get less and less important or precious. But that's not really the issue. The issue to Paul is what actually will survive the judgment that is the gold, silver, and precious stones, and what won't? What will actually survive the fire and what won't? So it's interesting, these materials that endure the testing by fire, they're actually used to build the temple of God Okay, in the Old Testament. So the temple has gold, silver, precious stones in it. In fact, who had the first uh, Chronicles 29.2 passage? Oh, yeah, Scott. No, with my ability, I have provided the house of my God, the gold for the gold things, and the silver for the silver things, and the bronze for the bronze things, the iron for the iron things, and the wood for the wood things, onyx, stones, and inlaid stones, stones of antimony, and stones of various colors, and all kinds of precious stones, alabaster, in abundance. Yeah, so here you have King David. He's charging Solomon to actually build the, the, the temple that he never got to. And he's charging the people and he's showing them that, in fact, he has the materials ready. But you can see that the very materials he's referring to are the materials Paul is talking about that last forever. Now, why is that an important image? Well, because when we get to verses 16 and 17, what are you and I? Well, we're the temple of God. Okay, so again, of course, Paul isn't talking about literal materials. He's just talking about what's consistent with the gospel. Okay, and so the wood, hay, and straw then would be materials that are burned up. Now, our works, friends, are going to be judged during the day of the Lord. And I'm going to just show you that the day here that we have referenced, it's an obvious allusion in the Old Testament to the day of the Lord. And I want to talk a little bit about that concept. It's, it was a concept to me the day of the Lord, that was kind of a question mark all wrapped up in an enigma for quite some time until I got a, quite a bit of opportunity by Bob who assigned me to do some eschatology and I was able to study this in depth and I'll kind of show you some of my conclusions. But what I want to show you is that we know that what Paul is talking about is judgment because the day when it's used like that is an always, it's always in reference to the eschatological judgment. Okay, so it's talking about the day of the Lord. And let me share with you what Gordon Fee says about this. He even concurs that this is the day of the Lord. He says, Paul has various expressions for this day. He says, for him, it involves the parousia, the resurrection and judgment. Hence, it is above all the day of the Lord. Okay, which Old Testament term 
He transformed into the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see those relevant passages. He goes on, he says, although there is no distinction in these terms as to what aspect of the future Paul is emphasizing, that of judgment tends to dominate. So in other words, in the day of the Lord, it's used in two different ways. The broad way, where there's the broad day of the Lord, where many things occur. Then there's a narrow day that's used in the minor prophets that's referring to a 24-hour period where Jesus comes and he fights for Israel, a unique day known only unto the Lord, as it says in Zechariah chapter 14. And so Paul is talking about this day that all people will actually be in front of, but the day that he's referencing here would be the judgment seat of Christ where our works will be burned up if we're building a false or building a different building that isn't consistent with the foundation. So let me talk briefly about, oh, by the way, i got to point something out. I, I just remembered. I put these circles here. You notice this it? I did some looking into the Greek, and this puzzles me, and maybe you don't care, but let me just point out something before I move on. The it here is referring to the work, but what's interesting is the it here, I think you can prove that it's referring to the day. In other words, I think most people would think that that it is also referring to the work. In other words, it is to be revealed with fire, but that's actually referring to the day. The day will be manifested by fire. Here's how I think we can know. There's no, there's no obvious subject. It's actually a apocrypto is the verb, and it's in the passive form. So it's being revealed. So the question we have to ask as interpreters is, well, what is it that's being revealed? Is it the work or is it the day? Now, here's how I think we can tell that it must be the day. Notice the very next clause would be redundant if this it referred to the work. Because notice it says, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Well, that's re- that would be redundant to what's being said here. So I think the it, and, and I think Gordon Fee agrees that the it is probably referring to the day. So realize, friends, the day to Paul is the day of judgment. That's what characterizes the day of the Lord. So that's important to our theology as well. Now let me move on and just give you a brief excursus. And by the way, anytime I talk about an excursus, that's a way for me to go down a bunny trail, and it still sounds technical. <laughs> now, I know many of you weren't able to attend or don't have time, and I know how busy everybody is to do any of the eschatology stuff, so I just want to share with you some of my thoughts on the Day of the Lord and what we've kind of come to a conclusion on. And I think this will help your Bible study, because I know when I studied the Scriptures, I would read about the Day of the Lord, and it confused me somewhat because it was used in different ways. Let me try to... Uh, draw the categories for the day of the Lord. First of all, the day of the Lord, there's a broad day of the Lord. This is the day that Paul is referring to. It begins, friends, I believe, with the inauguration of Daniel's 70th week. And it will come unexpectedly. So if you think about this, think about the minor prophets. What they're primarily concerned about is the inauguration of this Daniel's 70th week. In some sense, they're writing about when will this day break forth. And what we read about, I think, in Matthew 24, verses 36 onward, is no one knows the day or the hour. Okay. Now, when you're in the 70th week of Daniel, you'll know those things. Why? Because you have signs and things that happen. Well, that's talked about in Matthew 24, 29 through 35. And so, therefore, you have various signs. But when the 70th week breaks forth, you don't know. In fact, let me give you evidence of this from Paul himself. Now remember, Paul is borrowing his imagery, not from the Old Testament, but probably directly from Christ's language, from the Olivet Discourse. Let me explain why. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, he says, For you yourselves know full well 
that the day of the Lord, remember he's talking about the day of the Lord, will come just like a thief in the night. Now, friends, let me stop there. The thief in the night, that is imagery that you will not find in the Old Testament. That is imagery that Christ used in the Olivet Discourse. So more than likely, Paul is taking that right from Christ's work, right from the Olivet Discourse. That's where he's taking it from. Okay, so now notice, when Jesus uses the idea of the thief in the night, his whole point is you don't know when the thief is coming. I made an analogy in our class that if I knew when a thief was coming, I'd break out a tuna sandwich, I'd load up my 357, and I'd have 911 in the phone, you know, on the speed dial, and I'd just sit there, right? <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that, that's what you would do. You'd sit there with your Easton baseball bat, your 34 aluminum, and you'd be all set to go. But the point is that that isn't an option because it comes unexpectedly. That's the whole point of a thief in the night. So the point is you won't know. And it says while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. Has anybody read the book of Revelation starting in chapter 6? Notice that the second seal, the Lord says he removes what? Peace from the earth. Well, if peace has left the earth by the second seal, how can they be saying peace and safety later? In fact, you have sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts by the fourth seal. And every time those are used in the Old Testament, it's, it's God's judgment and wrath. Okay? So certainly this is evidence that the day of the Lord starts at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. And also notice the phrase labor pains. It comes upon like labor pains upon a woman. The Greek term for labor pains is Odin. A very important term because Odin, that is a link to the Septuagint of Isaiah 13.8 with reference to labor pains in the inauguration of the day of the Lord. The point is, friends, we are pregnant now. Okay, we are pregnant with Messiah coming But there's a point in time where you enter labor pains. And once the labor pains come, that is the analogy of the 70th week. My wife, we were watching Bill Cosby because we're getting ready for children. She was pregnant. And we had no idea when when this would happen. We thought we had some weeks to go, and all of a sudden her water broke. That's labor pains coming upon us. It came upon us suddenly. We had no warning. Okay, now was she pregnant the whole time? Oh, yeah. But when the labor pains came, that came unexpectedly. Okay, and that's how it's being used here. So labor pains, that's Odin, connection, Isaiah 13, 8, but also Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24, 6. Matthew 20, or I'm sorry, Matthew 24, 8. Jesus links the labor pains, the same term Odin, to what happens at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. So the point is, I think this happens at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. That's the day of the Lord, and that's the day of the Lord that Paul is referring to. Now, the thing that will confuse you is sometimes, oh, it also comes suddenly. The day of the Lord, oh, here, by the way, I'm getting off track. I want to show you my diagram. So this is when the the broad day of the Lord will happen. This is the Daniel 70th week. This is the first three and a half years. This is the last three and a half years. So the broad day of the Lord will extend all the way through the millennial kingdom. How do we know that? Well, Peter talks about the heavens and the earth melting away with fervent heat associated with the day of the Lord. And that's associated even into the eternal state. So the broad day of the Lord lasts a long time and incorporates a lot of different things, one of them being judgment. That's what Paul's referring to. Now, this is what will confuse you, and I hope to alleviate that confusion. Sometimes when you read about the day of the Lord, it's the narrow day of the Lord. This is the day that Jesus comes and fights for Israel. This will be a unique day where the Messiah himself will soot his foot on the Mount of Olives. It will split in two, and he will fight for Israel, as it says a warrior does in the day of battle. Now, we read about this. Who has the Joel 2.31 passage? Oh, yeah, Jim. I'm going to show you how we can prove that this is a different day. Joel 2.31, the sunlight will be turned to darkness and the moon to the color of blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and terrible day. 
Yeah. Now, there's a link between what Jim just read, this great and terrible day. The identical phrase is found only in the Hebrew of Malachi 4.5. Okay? Now, listen to who had the Malachi 4.5. Oh, I, we kept it in the family. That's right. Sorry. Robert, we're going to have one more in the family too, so just stay right there. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Yeah, so here it's the same phrase. There's five words in the Hebrew. One has to do with gadol, great, and terrible, day of Yahweh. Okay, so those very phrases are identical. Now, here's the, the point. When you look at Joel 2.31, that day in context, the day of the Lord, is synonymous with what happens in Joel 3.14 through 15. Now, who had that passage? Listen, oh, I'm sorry, I kept it, yeah. Listen to this very carefully because this will tip you off what Joel is talking about in Joel 2.31. When does this happen? What day of the Lord is he referring to? Now listen to this. Joel 3.14-15. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will go dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. Yeah, so here now he's saying that the day of the Lord is near when you have the multitudes in the valley of decision. Well, that happens at the end of Daniel's 70th week. Because that's in the sixth bowl, in the book of Revelation, that's when all the nations are gathered against Israel. Okay? So the point is, is uh, Joel 2.31 and Joel 3.14-15 are linked together. So that's the narrow day of the Lord referring to the very day that Messiah will come down and fight for Israel. So anyway, this is when the, the narrow day of the Lord will happen. is at the end of the 70th week when Jesus comes back. So sometimes you'll be reading and you'll say, well, gosh, that sounds like a broad period of time. And sometimes it seems like just a day. That's why. But Paul is referring, friends, to the former. He's referring to the broad day where there's going to be judgment associated with God's enemies. Okay? So now we see that we're going to have reward or loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 14 through 15, Paul continues. He says, If any man's work which he has built on it remains, then, remember the implied then, the apotesis, then he will receive reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Okay, so here's the point. Build with the gospel, you get reward. Build with anything else, you suffer loss. It's that simple. Okay, that's what God is saying to us. One other thing I want to point out, and I pointed this out with reference to Christ, and I wonder, I don't know, I can't prove this, but so take this with a grain of salt, but you see where it says he himself um, that's what's called an adjectival intensive. And it's sometimes it's important because, not necessarily to um, the Greek audience, but when you're talking to Jews, this would be important because, remember, they believe that they, their posterity, their seed, their children, they would experience life after death through them. Are you with me? But when you say he himself, that talks about the person himself. And the reason I'm pointing that out is there's no wiggle room. That person will be saved. They're not going to be lost. You can't say, well, they're saved in the sense that they'll see eternal life through their children. No, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying he himself. So it's the actual person. They will be saved. Okay? So that takes away any notion that the Jews may have had that, well, they survive onward only through their children. No, that's not true. The other thing I want to talk about now are the two judgments. This one is associated with the judgment seat of Christ. And the reason I know that is because at the judgment seat of Christ, friends, you and I will be judged, but we won't be judged whether or, not we're, whether or not we're going to be going to hell or heaven, but rather what kind of reward we will get for what we've done in the body. And Paul addresses this in actually 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, where he says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, 
to be pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, let me say a word on this. The amillennialists will try to claim that this verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10 shows you that there's only one judgment and all people will go to this judgment. So they would think that this judgment is like the white throne judgment in that both believers and unbelievers are there. But notice, very, this is very crucial, notice the plural pronoun we. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Well, who wants to please the Lord? Is it believers or unbelievers? Well, only believers. Okay. Now, who's the we here? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, that we would have to be the same we here. Okay, And so, therefore, we know this is referring to believers and not unbelievers. Okay, And so, notice, I, if this is synonymous, if I'm correct, then that, this is referring to the same judgment up here in 1 Corinthians 3, 14 through 15. The person will be judged. Now, if they're building a different building than the one God has or, or is in the process of building on the foundation of the gospel, their works are going to be burned up and they're going to have no reward. Okay, But salvation isn't an issue. Okay? Now, saying that, there's going to be another category when we get to verses 16 through 17. That's a different category because there Paul is actually going to be addressing apostate teachers. Those who are false teachers are actually destroying the flock of God. Okay, so this is where we get into God's warning to false teachers. Verses 16 through 17, Paul continues, he says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And that, by the way, Paul is using a rhetorical device. This is something that the the Greeks would have been boasting in. They love rhetorical questions. And so here Paul is using their own form of argumentation against them. The very arguments that they boasted in as being human wisdom, he's using against them to prove that they don't have human wisdom, that they shouldn't boast in human wisdom, and that they should only boast in the wisdom of God. So again, irony. If any man destroys the temple of God, here's the then part, then God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Interesting, the term for temple, there's two terms. There's naos and heron. Uh, Heron, that's used of the temple complex as a whole. Okay, In other words, that would be the the whole shooting match, everything associated with the temple, the, the whole thing, the whole building, right? But when you get to the naos, that's the inner sanctuary, I think technically you could, would, it would be the holy, not the holy of holies. In other words, the holy of holies is inside the holy place, but it would be the area where God resides. That's the idea. Are you with me? So naos is what Paul is using here. And so he's making a very specific statement. It's not that you're the temple in general. You're the place where God dwells. And that's why it's so important that whoever builds, builds consistent with the gospel because you're the new temple. That's the idea. Okay. So you're the temple, you're the place now where God tabernacles through the third person of the Trinity, that being the Holy Spirit, whom God sealed you until the day of redemption, it says in Ephesians 4.30. And remember Galatians 3, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it by works or by faith? Well, it was by faith. And faith in what? Well, the gospel. And that's why the gospel is so important. It's the only way to build a building. Um, So again, yeah, it's naos. That's what Paul's using. So God, friends, very important. God will destroy in hell those false teachers who build improperly on the foundation. There's no wiggle room, by the way, in this term destroy. Uh, It just means destroy. (laughs) Kaput. You're done. God will wipe you out. Now, realize this. Annihilationists 
will try to claim that that term destroy means you cease to exist. And they will use a verse like this and try to claim, well, God will not judge eternally his enemies, but rather he wipes them out, right? But realize, friends, you and I use destroy for things we know not to be wiped out. For instance, if your car was destroyed in a car crash, people don't say, well, your car ceased to exist. They don't think that. They just know that, well, it's, it's beat up really bad and it doesn't run. The same thing applies here. Never in biblical parlance do you get the notion that something ceases to exist. Okay? It's the, rather, the idea is, is it's destroyed. And, and this implies, therefore, eternal destruction. So um, it's actually, in some sense, worse news than annihilation for, for the unbeliever. Friends, I think this is an important application, though, for the world in general and for us as, as the church because James 3.1 says, Brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And the reason I point this verse out is I know in my own life I've been associated with people who longed to be teachers and they did. They taught, but they really had no business teaching because they wanted nothing to do with building on the foundation that is the gospel. In particular, I, I'll just use an example. I won't mention names, but I was involved with a prison ministry where we would go into these prisons and the man who was in charge would often not teach the gospel, but he would teach about different people's personality. And so-and-so has this type of personality and so-and-so has this type of personality. And as Bob said, talking about self as human beings, it's a bad subject. It has nothing to do with the foundation. It's not going to build the superstructure. Okay, what these men in the prisons needed to hear is that they had forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what they needed. So, friends, apply this in your own lives when you're looking to start a Bible study, when you're going to be teaching the Word of God. Always remember the passages, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17, that you will not build on anything except the foundation. And it's not your job to give self-improvement courses. It's not your job to uh, help people to tie better uh, lures on their... Whatever it is. I I don't know what skills you want to teach, but your job as a Christian minister, because remember, the priesthood of all believers, your job is to preach the gospel. That's your job. And again, God is the one who's responsible for the results. And so, friends, in some sense, we should enter into ministry and to teaching a little bit quaking in our boots knowing that we're building on a foundation that we must build consistently on according to the gospel. It can't be our own building whatsoever. So let me end with a summary. of It comes from Gordon Fee. And Gordon Fee does a very nice job at summarizing. And so I'm going to use his words because I think he says it better than I could. Listen to what he says. And I think this has tremendous implications and applications for us today. Paul says this. He says, This text has singular relevance to the contemporary church. It is neither a challenge to the individual believer to build his or her life well on the foundation of Christ, nor is it grist for theological debate. Rather, it is one of the most significant passages in the New Testament that warn and encourage those responsible for building the church of Christ. In the final analysis, of course, this includes all believers, but it has particular relevance following so closely as it does in verses 5 through 9 to those with teaching slash leadership responsibilities. Paul's point is unquestionably warning. It is unfortunately possible for people to attempt to build the church out of every imaginable human system 
predicated on merely worldly wisdom, be it philosophy, pop psychology, managerial techniques, relational good feelings, or what have you. Well said, Gordon. But at the final judgment, all such building and perhaps countless other forms where systems have become more important than the gospel itself will be shown for what it is, something merely human with no character of Christ or his gospel in it. Friends, unfortunately, that is an indictment against many churches and ministries today. I remember trying to work with a church in the local area where they were inviting Brian McLaren in to come and speak from the pulpit. And the fact that the man denied and encouraged those who did deny the substitutionary atonement was of no consequence to this ministry. Why? Well, because they, they wanted nothing to do with the foundation. They were building their own building that had nothing to do with God's building. And at the end of the day, it won't last. It's going to be destroyed in the day of the Lord. So friends, let me just exhort you, let's build on the foundation, let's preach Christ and him crucified, let's stay with the basics and stick with the scriptures. And friends, we will be building with gold, silver, and precious stones, things that God will reward when he looks you in the eye in the last day and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Those are the words, friends, we long to hear, and it's only by building on the foundation he has laid. So with that, I know I'm done early. I didn't want to get into the next section because it breaks the flow of thought. So with that, I'll take any questions or comments. And In your class, when you were doing the uh, First Thessalonians 5.2, yeah. you said something that really helped me. Oh, okay. That I think we need to say here, too. When we look around and see all of these awful things that are happening in the world and the things that we don't like, yeah. and they're scary and they're frightening and and there's storms, there's earthquakes, there's fires, there's all of these things happening. Because the day of the Lord hasn't happened, there falls labor. That's right. And that helped me so much, so I just wanted to make sure we got that said. Well, thanks, Diane. Yeah, that's a great analogy. It is false labor. To a certain extent, all the things that will happen in Daniel's 70th week are in some, I shouldn't say everything, but a lot of the things are already happening. It's just not to the extent. There are wars but it won't be like in those days where you lose a third of the population. Yeah, so it'll be greatly accentuated and increased in, in the day of the Lord, yeah. Can I make a few Yeah, yeah, things? that'd be great. This fantastic lecture, by oh, the way. Oh, thank thanks, Bob. This section shows us something that might answer some questions I get all the time. People call me or email me, and they want to know whether I think certain people out there are saved or not. Mm. Okay, see, Rick Warren. Yeah. Okay, because I wrote about that. Well, here, this gives us a category. It does, yeah. That there are actually people who are Christian that are building with straw. Yeah. All right? Yeah. And their works will be burned up, but they'll be saved. That's right. And so we know that category exists, and we're not capable as human beings of determining who's in it. Mm, That's right. So I tend to just say, I demure. I say, well... Mm. (laughs) I don't know. They claim to believe the gospel. They might be in this category, yeah. or they might just be apostate. Yeah. yeah. All right? God will decide that on the day of judgment. Mm-hmm. But wow. this also indicts our Christian educational system of yeah. higher learning. Yeah. This is a, this is a huge indictment yeah. because most of our, and this is, goes back 50 or 60 years, this is in a new development, most of our uh, 
uh, Bible colleges, seminaries, and so forth, for years have been invested in wood, hay, and stubble. Mm. Right? They require you to study wood, hay, and stubble. (laughs) (laughs) And and I know even back in the 70s when I first went to Bible college, it wasn't so bad, but it was there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? We don't need to invest billions and millions of Christian dollars in wood, hay, and stubble. Mm, yeah. All right. Somebody wants to study psychology, they can go to the U. Right. Yeah. I, there was a guy whose wife got yeah. a, for whatever reason, decided to want to get a degree in psychology. And so she studied for two years at a Christian Bible college yeah. and then two years at the U. Yeah. And he was in our uh, men's Bible study on Saturday morning. So we asked the man, what's the difference between the psychology at the U and the psychology in the Christian college? And he thought about it for a while. And he said, well, the difference is the people in the Christian college actually believe it. And the people <laughs> at the U are skeptical. <laughs> wow. That's, <laughs> and oh, so they, they're wow. going to a, a thing with a banner of Christianity. And so I assume everything they're getting is gospel yeah. truth. Oh, yeah. Wow. Right? When they went to the U, they said, well, there's this theory, yeah. that theory, the other theory. None of them have been proven. That's a great point. Wow. And so wow. this is fantastic. Dear ones, we don't start with the gospel and then go to plan B. Hmm. All right? We start with the gospel. We build with the gospel. We, we're uh, edified by the gospel. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need. And and there's all kinds of details. Somebody might say, well, you know, this might be kind of boring. You only got one topic. (laughs) (laughs) You know, don't don't you need more topics than just one topic? But the fact is we'll be talking about the lamb that was slain for Mm. all eternity. That's right. Amen. And we're not going to get bored in heaven because we're worshiping the lamb who was slain and was raised. And I've been studying the Bible now since 1971, and I'm not so sure I've even cracked the surface very yeah, well. <laughs> I know. That's, yeah. And the Bible's limited. It's just what God's chosen to reveal. When we get to heaven, there'll be even more. Yeah. And so as parents, many of you are parents or grandparents, uh, just be encouraged in this, mm-hmm. that what your children need is the gospel. Mm-hmm. And they need to be nurtured and developed in the gospel they need to be given what they need to build with uh, gold and precious stones and silver yeah, and so on. And right. so, uh, Eric, I, I want to thank you. I thought this was oh, fantastic. Thanks. Okay. Um, oh, thanks, you guys. Uh, yeah, you know, I just build off something you said there, Bob, and, and I'll take your comment, Tom. You know, I've had, um, too, that idea with um, even dealing with kids at our teenage ministry this idea that somehow the gospel, if we stay with that, it's boring. You get that sense. Friends, the reason why kids are bored is because they're boring. Okay? The problem is people. It's not the Word of God. Okay? Like Bob said, he's been studying it for, I want, how many years? 1971, and he's just barely cracked the surface, and I can concur. I haven't been studying it that long, and um, I'm not, you know, it, it, it's so deep and so profound. And that, that's one thing, when we teach the Word of God as it is, as it is, and we don't, we tell stories. For instance, let me just give you just a quick analogy. If I'm going to teach on election, I can talk about a story from myself, or I can use the Bible to illustrate it. One of my favorite Bibles is, uh, stories to illustrate election is Mephibosheth. 
whose very name means shameful one. He comes from Lothavar, means nowhere. He's a nobody from nowhere, and he's crippled, and he's brought before the king's table, and he says, who am I but a dead dog to eat at the king's table? Friends, that's powerful. That's you and I. And that's a story that comes from the Bible. It's not me. So I don't have to try to conjure up something. The Bible's more interesting than we are. Okay, (laughs) it is. So, friends, if you run into that, don't buy into the it'll be boring. We're boring. The Bible isn't. Okay, so, yeah. Tom. In verse 9, I wasn't here, so you may have covered this. Uh, It talks about God's building. Yeah. And I believe that would be the local church. And I believe it should be a big emphasis on the local church versus like the universal church. Yeah. Yeah, Tom, I, I think you're right, actually. Now, obviously, there, there's, there's two. It extends to all of us, so it extends to the universal, universal church. But you're right, and I think Gordon Fee would see it the same way, that Paul's concern in this letter is first and foremost to the local church of Corinth. And the local church is comprised of believers of the universal church, obviously. But the local church is a very precious thing, and Paul is trying to guard this fiercely. Because if it goes the way of the false teachers, it'll no longer be the church of Christ at Corinth. It'll be the church of some human wisdom, and it no longer exists. So, yeah, but you're right. So it's not an either-or, it's both-and. But I think you're right. The focus is on the local church of Corinth, and then its implications and applications to the broader realm of Christianity. Yeah, yeah well said. Oh, yeah, Melanie. So I'm going to switch uh, subjects here on you. But oh, okay. in chapter 16, or verse 16, verse 16. when I read that, um, the subject of suicide comes to mind. Mm. And I have been recently, uh, not questioned, but uh, some comments on suicide. I know this person committed suicide, but I know he's in heaven. Mm-hmm. How do you respond to something like that? Well, first and foremost, it's against the law of God. It's an immoral thing and it's sin against him. He alone gives life and he alone can take life or those whom he's given the authority to do so. So it's an immoral act and it's sin. You know, I don't pretend to be a counselor with uh, people who are in fact suicidal. But this passage, let me just say this, and I don't mean to... um, This passage really doesn't have to do with that. And I'm glad you brought it up because this passage isn't about so much... Oh, yeah, let me just put the passage back up. Verse 16, right here, where it says, If any man destroys the temple of God... And so a lot of times people will reason. They say, well, I'm the temple of God, and therefore I won't smoke. Therefore I won't do this because I'm the temple of God where the Holy Spirit resides. But the problem is that's outside of what Paul's point is. His point is that there's false teachers that are trying to build with a different gospel. Do you see what I'm saying? They're trying to destroy it. So, yes, you and I are in some sense the place where God resides, but the issue isn't, therefore, I shouldn't smoke or I shouldn't drink. The issue is we better not preach or teach with anything other than the Word of God. That's really the issue at hand. So the question with the suicide really goes to the issue that's sinful that would be sinful to murder oneself that's murder by the way murder and killing is different and the bible recognizes that it's so there's ratsak and harag ratsak is i believe murder is that right lincoln and harag is killing okay so the commandment says thou shall not murder okay it doesn't say thou shall not kill a soldier in the field kills the enemy 
That's not murder. Why? Because he's protecting society. But if I would take my life, that's murder. Okay? And so that has to be expressed to that person. But at the end of the day, some of them won't care because they're so desperate. And that's the point. And then they need to hear about the love of God. They need to hear that Christ has come and that he has atoned for their sins. They need to hear about who Christ is and what he has done. They need to hear the gospel. I wish I could give you better counsel. Maybe someone else has some things afterwards that they can say to you. But to the point that this passage really, I probably wouldn't bring it up in this context because it's a little off the point that Paul is making. Yeah. So I hope that helps. And see me afterward. I'd like to pray for that person. So, yeah. Yeah, Rich. Uh, yes, I like talking about the foundation. You really are talking about the foundation, laying a foundation. This yeah. is so much what you're talking about. I, I hear about what YWAM is doing and how they talk about Christ followers. And then they say, just add Jesus Christ to your life. If you're Muslim, whatever, you know, stick with your yeah. Islam, go to the mosque, and then pray to Jesus rather than to Allah. In other words, just add Jesus Christ to whatever you got going. Sure. But I see something a lot more subtle and tricky in the evangelical church, and I kind of grew up with it in this notion, and it's very, very hard for me. And when I came to the knowledge of the gospel, it really was subtle, but it's an amazing shift or paradigm shift. And that is is that, um, well, it's a foundation of myself. You know, I'm going to build Jesus Christ upon myself. And it's maybe sanctification before justification, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Or the, S, the, the um, thinking of that, well, I'm going to, Jesus Christ is going to build on Rich Patterson. Mm. But the essence is, is that when we're circumcised or cut to the heart, there is no foundation inside of me mm. besides, you know, being cut to the heart and realizing that I have nothing. Yeah. What Bob Dway says, bringing to the bargaining table, the only thing I bring to the bargaining table is sin. So right. there's nothing in me worth salvaging. Yeah. So the foundation that I have in myself has got to be ripped apart and dug out yeah. before a foundation of Jesus Christ can be laid. And then on top of that, Christ is built on top of the foundation of Jesus Christ already. Yeah. So in other words, I have no foundation in and of myself to build on. Yeah, well said. Yeah, we can't compartmentalize and just add Christ to the list of the other gods that we have. My wife, she um, did ministry, I should say, in India. She was part of a family who would preach the gospel. Her uncle was a, a preacher there, and she um, remembers going into villages where they would take Jesus, whom they supposedly believed in, repented and trusted in, and they would just add him to the pantheon of the other gods and goddesses. They would just like add an icon. And so he was just one among many. And I think that is what you're suggesting, too, with YWAM. These false conversions, what people are doing is they're merely adding Jesus as a small-case God, and they're adding them into the other areas of their life. They have Jesus, but they also have yoga. And yoga, sometimes you can pull that out. And so what they really have, friends, is self-made religion. They have a gospel of their own making. They have a different Jesus, which is no Jesus at all according to 2 Corinthians 11, and they have a different gospel, which Paul warned about. And so that's a very big risk. You're right, we have nothing, and we start afresh. And so we build our foundation upon Christ, Him crucified, and all the things that He has for us, rather than just adding Him to all the other gods or, uh, that we're serving. So, well said. And even that born again, you start all over again. I mean, you stop and you... Yeah. It's bam. You forget everything that you were trusting in before. Yeah, that's right. You, there's, yeah, you're done. You're, you're, um, you're like Melphibosheth. Who am I but a dead dog? You had nothing to offer. You, you were brought to the table, you know. Yeah. Oh, I'm. Yeah, back there. Eric, I had a question also about verse 16. Yeah. You're talking about destroying the temple of God. 
yeah. God will destroy him. Yeah. When you're talking about the temple of God being the inner sanctuary, and um, how can someone destroy the temple of God, the inner sanctuary? Yeah, so again, that's an important point because it gets back to kind of what Melanie is talking about. Let's keep our analogy, just let's get it straight. The temple Paul is referring to is the church at Corinth. Okay, so collectively, you and I are the temple. Okay, and that's why I shy away from, well, I won't smoke. Because why will this passage, I'm the temple of God. You and I, the idea is collectively, Corinth was the temple of the living God because God had built them. And so what was happening is these false teachers were teaching human wisdom rather than the wisdom of Christ and Him crucified. And so they were building a completely different building altogether. So the image here isn't of the individual not that we're not saved as individuals, but the idea is the corporate body. Do you see what I'm saying? So, again, this is not a good passage to, um, when somebody says, well, you shouldn't smoke. Why? Well, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, you're the, you know, the temple of God. I, I think that goes a little bit beyond what Paul is saying there. You, know, you see what I'm saying? So this has to do with the corporate body at Corinth. False teachers were destroying it because they were building a different building altogether than what God had started. Yeah. Yeah, um, again, obviously at the end of the day, God's people will persevere. For those whom he's justified, he's also then glorified, as it says in Romans 8.30. But there's also warnings in Scripture, and God's people will heed their warnings, and they will not tolerate the teachers that do this. And the teachers who are doing this, they're being warned so that if they are, in fact, of the flock, and like Bob said, we don't know. Sometimes there may be people who are genuine believers who are, are just building with wood, hay, and stubble, and it will all be burned up. But sometimes they're just apostates, and they're going to their own destruction. So the warnings in Scripture, God uses these means to warn God's people and warn the teachers, whether they be of the flock or apostate. And um, obviously only those of the flock will heed the warnings. Do you see what I'm saying? So, it, it, so to get to your point, it really is impossible in the ultimate sense, to destroy God's building. But nonetheless, the warning is there. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So. Yeah, the temple here is a church. Exactly. Not the human body. Yeah, not the human yep. Okay, um, I wanted to mention uh, when I went out to that emergent conference, you were talking here about building on the foundation of Christ. Yeah. Well, what I heard there was a lot of talk about Christ and how uh, everything has to come down to Jesus, but they don't have a defined Jesus. Oh, right, yeah. It's okay, so one. Brian McLaren ha- talks about seven different Jesuses. Oh, wow. And so their definition of Jesus is socially constructed. So you have the Roman Catholic Jesus, you have the Pentecostal Jesus, wow. you have this Jesus, that Jesus, and you can't know for sure who he is. Wow. The community has their own Jesus, sure. whoever that might be. Yeah. And so then... I went to this workshop where they were talking about, well, the Holy Spirit is always leading us to Jesus, which technically is true, but they couldn't define who Jesus was. Wow. And so at the end of the conference, when they were the workshop where you could have discussion, yeah. I finally got bold enough. I just decided to say something. And I said, okay, Second Corinthians 11, 4 talks about another spirit, another gospel, and another Jesus. How are you guys going to decide which one you're going to follow? Yeah. <laughs> and, what do you say to that? Well, they got mad. A bunch of people got mad. They had their notebooks that they were taking notes and stuff on. Yeah. Their their computers. They slapped their computers shut, got up, and walked out. Wow. 
They, they got mad rather than even trying to answer the question. Yeah. So if there's another Jesus out there, then you can't just say there's seven Jesuses. Yeah, that's And right. there's uh, socially constructed reality, and that's we can't sad. be sure. The Bible defines exactly who Jesus is. Wow, that's right. Okay? Amen. And so we need to be able to be very clear when we preach Christ yeah. to explain to people who he is, what he did, mm. why, he, why we need him, and what he expects of us. That's wow. what it means to preach Christ. Wow, that's a fitting, yeah, fitting way we to get about two minutes. Yeah. Yeah, Tom. I agree with you, of course, in the in the interpretation on yeah. the idea of, of destroying the temple of God. Yeah. But First Corinthians six and verse let's see where is it? Verse nineteen says, "Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit." Yeah, yeah, that, that'd be an appropriate usage there. Yeah. So, so yep. I think the, the, there's a difference between interpretation and application. Yeah. Yep. And that that it's the application that destroying the temple of God is is like. Not smoking or, or suicide yeah. would, would definitely apply, but it's not the interpretation. Yeah, and even here, though, it's interesting. It's um, the idea that what destroys the body, the temple of the living God, isn't so much what we put in it physically, but it's the spiritual dimension as well. And I hate to even use the term because it's so abused, but you know what I mean? It's it's the content of what we believe. It's the gospel. And... Um, and that's why he, he's warning um, there. So, yeah, you're right. At 1 Corinthians 3, I wouldn't use that, but you could use a passage such as this, as long as it's consistent with the warning that Paul has, which, you know, again, the warning that he's primarily concerned about is those who would believe that they have wisdom and power and they would elevate that above the wisdom and power that comes alone from the gospel. So, yeah, the... But, um, you know, we have other passages in Ephesians 5, do not be drunk, um, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of passages um, that we could probably turn to that have to do with abuse. But we always want to be careful. What's Paul's warning? Is it about physical things or is it about something that will lead us away from the gospel? But, yeah. 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 Yep. Very good point. Yep. Well said, Tom. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Larry. Pull up uh, the screen, 1 Corinthians 3, 12, and 13. Okay. There we are. Could you uh, please repeat that theological term you use for the uh, word if? You, you kind of oh, yeah, gave a little bit about that. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's helpful to know the terms, especially when you're you yeah. know, trying to apply them. But uh, yeah. please uh, give us uh, just a, another run over again what yeah. that if Means. When you see an if, this is what's called a protasis, apotasis construction. So the protasis is the if portion. The apotasis is the then. It's the same thing as like in logic, a hypothetical syllogism. If this, then that. Okay, so in here, in this case, it would be if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, then each man's work will become evident. So that's the result. So, yeah, that, that's how it's referred to. So if you're ever reading theological literature and they're talking about a apotesis, apotesis, it's an if-then. The then is always the apotesis, if that makes sense. And so even though you don't see a then, it's implied, if that makes sense. So it's implied there, okay? So, yeah, and, it's, and what's so neat, you guys, is that this conforms with logic. So logic is in our enemy. It's our friend. 
the scriptures. Um, Paul uses logic all the time, and we talked about that in our logic course. We had a lot of fun with that. So, yeah, apodosis, apodosis. And it's also a hypothetical syllogism. So, so yeah. Yep, and so, friends, we'll uh, see you all upstairs at the sermon. <laughs>